Finding Our Voices, the podcast. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, which is at findingourvoices.net, and which is survivors, including me, breaking the silence of domestic abuse by standing proud and speaking loud. It was one thing to throw things at me. It was one thing to call names, but you, like, he physically broke a body part. Oh, what a beautiful day that was. Just freedom. Just like being reborn every day. Like you can wake up, you can breathe, you can go down and have a cup of coffee and sit by yourself and not worry if somebody's wondering who you're talking to, what you're doing. Like the ability to just sit there and just be free. Today is a two-parter. First, our sisters Patty and Julie. Patty was angry at Julie for a long time over how her abusive relationship was damaging their whole family. Welcome, Patty and Julie. And now, let's talk about it. Julie and Patty, thank you for gathering today and having a conversation with me about how domestic abuse affects the family. I guess the first thing I'm wondering is, were you close growing up? No. We had to share a bedroom, but it wasn't that we were close. We didn't have anything in common. You know, we were just a little different. I mean, she was a girly and I was not. Are you close now? Oh, yeah. We talk every day. Every day. Julie, how old were you when you met the abusive partner that we're talking about today? I was 26. I was in Houston by myself, you know, 2,500 miles away from my family. The 2,500 miles doesn't even cover how distant we were because I was a senior in college and I was, I was in the middle of the breakup with my first girlfriend and stuff. I couldn't even get past where I was, let alone where she was. In fact, I wasn't at the wedding. And Julie, who knew about your relationship with him or even that you started a relationship with him? Just basically my parents. And what what was their reaction to him? They, as always, were concerned that I not be hurt. And at the beginning, I felt safe with him. He seemed really nice, you know? It's like, oh, good. Okay, she got a new boyfriend. Okay. But then the guy who introduced us came back to me when he found out we were dating and said, has he hit you yet? And that was when I was already pregnant with uh, my second daughter. I was like, no, what are you talking about? And he said, don't worry, he will. When's the first time that you indicated to your family that things were not great? I did not tell them anything, but the day I went into labor with Lucy, I got in a fight with Chava. He was mad because she was late. Yeah, right? I've heard lots of reasons uh, why these guys are mad for no reason, but that probably is the topper of all of them. Yeah, I got him to take me to the mall so that I could walk in the air conditioning to try and, you know, move things along, right? On the way home, he was just spouting off and being really mean. And 
so about three miles from our apartment, I got out of the car and I started walking home like nine months and two weeks pregnant. And I walked those three miles home. Well, I got home from my three mile walk about, I don't know, two in the afternoon and I went to sleep. And when I got up, I could feel Lucy between my knees. He was still mad though. And he like banged me into a wall and he grabbed my arms. So when mom got there, I, I told her that I tripped and hit my face because it was all scraped up and my knees were scraped because he pulled me. In fact, I have a picture of me with my, one of my stepdaughters the day Lucy was born and you can see the bruises. And, but, and so I lied to mom. The next morning I went into the hospital about six and she was helping me get dressed and she saw the bruises on my arms. And that's when she knew. What did she say? As soon as he left the room after the baby was born, she said, you weren't gonna say anything? I said, what? She said, I saw your arms. I saw the bruises. Is that how you got that bruise on your face? And he did this to you? You know, I couldn't deny it. I mean, there were fingerprints on my arms. It was no doubt what it was. And then she told dad. Of course, if dad could have crawled through the phone, he would have. And after that, you know, they were always on the edge about him, always. How long had you been with him? It had been a year. Just a year? Uh Uh-huh. And how long did you end up with him total? Ten. So your mother and father are onto the fact that this guy's abusing you, and it's one year into the relationship. And there's nine more years. Were they trying to actively get you uh, out of this relationship all that time? At first, I was open about what was happening. And Which it was freaking my parents out. Pained my mom and dad. Let's get Patty in here to tell about what she remembers from that time period. I remember that dad was always sending her money for like lawyers and, and stuff. He traveled for work, so he would try and travel there to make sure she was okay. He was doing what he could, but she couldn't help herself. My mom was less diplomatic about it with her. She just said, you just need to leave. Did you hear that? Yeah. You know, if I was home, then I would hear it. Or my mom would talk to me on the phone about it. You know, your dad's trying to help your sister again. She's in trouble with Chava, and, you know, and and I just wish she would leave and, and that kind of stuff. I got madder and madder at Julie is what I did because I didn't understand it. I, and I was mad at him, but I was even mad at her because she wouldn't leave. Do you remember what you were thinking at the time about yeah, this? I was like, why don't you get the f- out of there? You know, just leave. And, and well, you know, she's got kids. Well, you know what? Dad would help you in a minute to get out of there. And in fact, he did at one point. Were you upset at her because of the way she was upsetting your parents? Yes, but also because I felt like she could have done something more for herself than she was doing. And so, Julie, going back to you, you said that in the beginning you were open with your parents. And then what happened after that? Well, I I saw that it was freaking my parents out. And my dad, who was a very action-oriented person, this is the problem. What steps can we do to solve it? That's my dad. And so the fact that I wasn't 
finding it in myself to find a way out was hard on him. Really? So I just stopped saying anything. Yeah. I will call and ask for money. I work like dad works. So I was like, dad's given her the platform. Why isn't she taking it? So I stopped saying as much unless something really bad happened. We had a four poster bed and he took one of the posts off the bed and he hit me with it in the stomach and I was pregnant. It was between his first daughter and his son. And he, he hit me with it and I had a miscarriage. I talked to mom and dad then that I had had a miscarriage, but I didn't explain to them how it happened. And dad at this point had gotten into the, you don't need to have any more kids mode too. Dad and mom came and picked me up here in Houston one time. And mom and I drove cross country with my three small kids, my two daughters and my son. My older sons were at their dad's and he bailed me out more than once to my ex-husband. And we drove cross country and uh, I got up to Washington and I was interviewing for jobs and doing this and that, but mom's very closed off emotionally a lot of the time she went through a hard time with my grandmother she was not the greatest person uh, to my mom and um so dad was traveling for work none of the other kids were living at home patty was off living i think in seattle at that point mom was at home most of the time by herself and I was kind of a disturbance to her universe because kids are loud and they're not predictable. And I had three of them and mom, she's not quite that way anymore, but she liked her world in order. Mm -hmm. And also what are the neighbors going to think? What are our friends going to think? all of that. So basically I got there and she's like, you have two weeks to find an apartment. Wow. And so dad and I went around our hometown, we found an apartment. And so basically I was in that apartment by myself. The big thing I was worried about is that my son who's 28 now was very sickly and he was only like three months old. And so dad wasn't around, mom wasn't available, my siblings weren't there. And so, you know, I felt alone. And so at all that time, while I was up there not feeling great, Chaba was looking for me. We didn't tell him where we were going or anything, but of course he figured, you know, she went with her parents, right? So back in those days, you call information and you can get somebody's number. And that, that's when the cycle, you know, where he tries to get back in your good graces and all that's happening. And meanwhile, dad's on like a three-week trip where he hasn't been home in three weeks. So Chava started looking for me. He found me and he, he kept calling. There was no call blocking or anything. And were the calls so, threatening calls or were they loving calls? No, no, no. Are you okay? Do you need anything? And, you know come home, we'll be good, everything will be fine, I'm sorry, and all the things that the abuser says when they're trying to cycle back and get you in their 
grasp again. How did you leave and how did you explain that to your parents and tell me about all that? He sent me the money for the tickets and I bought them and dad cried and mom wouldn't talk to me. And right around that time, dad went into the hospital for his just regular checkup and they found a problem. And he had to have an angioplasty and he was scared that he was gonna die and never talk to me again. I had no communication, none at all. I had no phone and this is summer, so I wasn't at school. So, you know, how you go through where he, he's taking away all of your lifelines. Chava came home and he showed me that this number from Washington had called and I called the back and it was Erlene. And she was saying that dad was in the hospital that he was going to have this procedure and he wanted to talk to me. So that night I went and I had the number for his hospital room and I called him and uh, he was crying and crying. The procedure went well and he was okay, but that's when the communication restarted. That is the the first time, because I was having troubles in my relationship. That was the first time that I admitted that this wasn't her fault. How did that happen? Because I started to see that anybody can have trouble in a relationship and you, it's not always as simple to get out as one would think. That's the first time when I decided that I was not going to judge her. And what was that like when you came to that realization with your sister? It was kind of a, a relief for me because it, it, it kind of allowed me to be a little more human with her. So we talked a few times that summer, if I remember right. My alcoholism was starting to wind up pretty good about them. Julie, yeah. were you worried about Patty? Did you know that Patty was going through the problem with alcohol? Um, you know, you become pretty self-absorbed in your own situation. I mean, I knew that she and Robin weren't great, but I was so wound up in just trying to survive. Julie, when you said that your father cried and cried, what did he say? What was that all well, about? He told me flat out, I was afraid that I would die and never speak to you again. To tell you that I love you and that I've always loved you. And no matter what's going on in your life, I always love you. How long and, had you not talked to him for? Well, I left in June and he had that operation, what, in like, September. So it wasn't that long that you didn't talk to him, but it felt like... No, no. But my mom and I talked every day for my whole life. And so for me not to talk to her for almost three months was like torture. And Julie, how much longer after that were you with Java? Another six years. And and having your family back in, in some way, and Patty also now talking with you, did that make things different for you? Um, no, because I was still, I was still like in the middle of really bad places. Was um, he isolating you? Were, were you able to talk to him? Oh yeah, phone? I still didn't have a phone. February 13th, our oldest brother, his daughter was killed in a kind of a freak accident. She was two. And I got a telegram. That's how I found out. 
I was about, you know, six months pregnant at that point. I hadn't even told them that I was pregnant. I hadn't told my parents because again, it came back to how freaked out they were about the relationship and they would be scared and worried. And what I didn't need was another kid, you know? So he, you didn't have a phone, but if, if you wanted to call your parents, were, were you able oh, to? I could go, but I had to like walk and then get to a, like a pay phone on the side of the road. I had four kids. You know, kids, are, when you're on the phone in your house, it's not easy because they never leave you alone. Of and course. So you can't really have a conversation. So doing it on the side of the road, is, it was really hard. So I didn't talk to them very often. And I was still struggling with Daniel. My, my son was in and out of the hospital all the time. They didn't quite know where I was at, but they did say, you shouldn't come. There's no reason for you to come home for the funeral. So, you know, I was kind of like outside the family loop. I went down there a couple of times and stayed with you and Shava, like for a holiday or something. My dad and mom used to go down for Thanksgiving. And so I went one year with them. And tell me what you remember about that. I just remember drinking beer with Chava. When I talk to people, I talk to their eyes. I talk to their face. And um, she pulled me aside and she said, you can't do that. And I looked at her like, what? Patty, what else did you observe? Do you remember? I remember that things that shouldn't be broken were broken. You know, like drawers on dressers, um, beds, bedposts. Everybody was tiptoeing around Chava. They would make a path around him almost. It was just really hard to watch. Yeah. And... <laughs> It, it made me just want to leave. Honestly, yeah. my least favorite place was, is still Houston. It was just so uncomfortable to be there, you know, because it just wasn't, you, you know, you go someplace and you visit with people and you, you know, you have a conversation and everybody's happy to see each other. No, the only time that we got the happy to see each other was when he would go somewhere you know, everybody would exhale. And then only if they knew how long he was going to be gone. Because if they didn't know when he was going to come back, then they would all be on waiting for him to come back. I just knew he was a, a, a But I did not know. I did not know about the, the day Lucy was born. I did not know about him leaving her on the side of the road with no glasses in the middle of the night in her pajamas, far from home. I didn't know he hit her with the bedpost. I didn't know the extent to which... He had abused her physically. The kids and I, we all knew his triggers. The rules, right? His rules. Yeah. And so, like, we would always make sure that the TV remote was where he could find it. And I had to make sure that everything in dinner, uh, except for the tortillas, was ready when he walked in the door. The door had to be locked because if it was unlocked, that meant that I was just letting the boyfriend out the back door. Gosh. And I was like, yeah, with my nine kids here. Cause I had his three daughters and my six kids. So, and, and what she's talking about uh, the, the tension all the time. At one point we had a cousin and his wife and their three kids living with us in one of the bedrooms. And we would be laughing and dancing and the music would be on and we would hear the truck pull up and the living room would vacate. 
And that's the way it always was because you didn't know what you were getting when you got home. Is he drunk? Is he, did he, you know, do, did something go bad at work? Is he on drugs today? What's but coming home? Talk about why you said that you knew his triggers. Why was that different when your family was there? Because things that triggered him were like normal things that everybody does. You know, the things that would just be, oh, the remote's missing again. Oh, it's probably under the couch. You know, and you'd be laughing, looking for it. No, it was a big deal. They didn't realize that this was going to be a big deal. And we all, the rest of us, our little world, knew it was a big deal. So it made it more stressful for you. Yeah, it, because I didn't want my parents to see that, you know, or Patty to see that. So, you know, you try and like handle the triggers as easily as possible without bringing a lot of attention to it. Did it come to a point where you didn't even want your family there for that reason? No, I never stopped them from coming because it was really my only, only relief. Because he wouldn't hit her when we were there. Oh, no. Patty, do you understand now why she didn't leave? Yeah, I do. I think it had more to do with uh, me getting some help for my alcoholism. I had a really serious motorcycle accident in 2003 and uh, almost died. What came out of that was that I, I went to alcohol rehab and, and so I've been sober for about 17 years. And first of all, it started with just dropping the judgment because I, I had judged her for a long time. I actually have a psychology and a criminology degree, so it took me a long time. I'm a little late to the party, all right? I'm a little late to the party. And so there was a period of time between the time when I had the accident and the time when I went to treatment where I had a lot of time to judge myself. And one of the first things I learned when I got sober was that I judge myself and I judge other people and I'm not right on either account. I used to have a really bad scar right here that I could see every day. And I would look in the mirror and I would just go, you you know, going through treatment and stuff, what I figured out was that everybody in the room had something, whether it was an emotional scar or a, uh, a physical scar, or both in my case. And when I started realizing that everybody's got something, you know, I realized that that was Julie's something. And I also figured out that alcoholics make the people around them sick. And that is exactly what Chava did. Um, you know, that whole thing about him having his set of triggers and them walking around those triggers. That's how alcoholics and addicts make people around them sick. He had the added bonus of being a jackass and, and beating on them. That was his thing. It was not her thing. Do you think and that it, silence has something to do with that, even with the alcoholism and with the abuse? Absolutely. We were more of enablers than people to break the cycle. We didn't treat that correctly, you know, but we, we didn't know how because it wasn't a part of our history. So had we been more proactive in getting her professional help, like getting domestic violence people involved, people who understood how this worked and how it really was and what it took to get out of it, then I think that we would have been much more effective that way. And don't you think that that relates to alcoholism as well? Yes, absolutely. I'm the only one in my family. And, you know, 
I had two DUIs when I was a teenager. So my, my parents did not know what to do with that. So the alcoholism also, it seems like you could use professional help and also only people who have been through it really understand. Right. And I was able to make the, the leap from what I had done and what had been going on with her. And I almost thought uh, from the side of me being Chava and, and her being on her side of the world, it became clear to me that people in my life had been adjusting to my alcoholism for a long time. And they loved me, so they stayed. But there were a lot of them that were really, 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 really glad when I quit drinking. <laughs> you know, I scared my mother. My mother didn't sleep from the time I was 13 until I was 39 because she didn't know when she was going to get a phone call. I, I went to treatment, a 28-day program in Texas, which is where the company sent me. And she came to family week, Julie and my mom. And family week is the worst week of your life because it's when everything you did that affected your family becomes public knowledge. Wow. And they take the alcoholic out and they put them in a different room so they can't control the narrative. But they didn't judge me for it. And they just wanted me to get better. She's told me a lot more about it since we, I've been sober than she did before that. And probably with good reason because I probably would have judged her terribly for it. And Julie, what does it mean for you to be close with Patty now? Oh, it's the world. It's everything. What does it mean that you could be honest and open with Patty about what you had gone through with Chava? Well, it's, uh, it's a relief. At some point, she would have judged me, but she doesn't judge anymore. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Patricia. But you say something that happened because it's just part of what your world has been. It's part of your knowledge. You don't realize you never told them that before. Yeah, the one about breaking your glasses and leaving you out on the road, because I know how blind my family members are, and that would just be terrifying. I tried to go to Al-Anon, and I went a number of times. But what ended up happening is that if I went to Al-Anon, then I was saying that he was an alcoholic. And so it became a reason, another reason to beat me. Because I basically, I was saying that he was an alcoholic if I was going to Al-Anon. You know, it was a starting point for Patty and I to talk, too, because Al-Anon has the 12 steps and the 12 traditions and all of those things, just like Alcoholics Anonymous does. And so it became a place for us to meet on, on a ground we both understood. What do they do at Al-Anon? Al-Anon is a support agency for, or a support group for families of alcoholics. But you should have been in a support group for domestic abuse victims. You gotta start somewhere. <laughs> for, me, for me, the big problem to me as I saw it was that he was abusing me when he was drunk. But then I would say that to him and he would, just to prove me wrong, beat me when he was sober. You were trying to give him an excuse. He wasn't having that. He was like, I'm making up my own mind to do this. It has nothing to do with the alcohol. So I'm going to be. Which is right. Because, you know, that you can't give him that excuse. 
you know. Yes, but at that point, you know, my, my disease was allowing me to give him an excuse. What do you see as your disease, Julie? I'm an enabler and a people pleaser. I enabled his disease by walking around his triggers, by allowing him to do the things that he did. And I remember very distinctly when I was going to Al-Anon, we were living in this little apartment. It was awful. And we had all the kids in there and he came home really drunk and his mother was there and she put a pillow under his head because he'd fallen asleep, you know, with his neck cricked, right? And I went by and I pulled the pillow out because I'm like, let him suffer through the results of his drinking, you know, let him have the stiff neck. It's his own fault. Right, right there. That's that if he throws the plate of food on the floor, leave it there. Got it. Because so that's, that's the result of his choosing. So was that helpful to you, Julie, moving forward? No, I got beaten for it. It wasn't helpful, but it was healthy thinking. And there were ways to do that without putting myself in jeopardy. Like he would use all the money out of the checking account. The checks would all bounce because he'd be buying drugs. So I would write the checks for the house payments and stuff. And they'd all bounce because he had gone to the ATM and taken out thousands of dollars. I, I opened a personal checking account and then I would pay all the bills off the, my personal checking account. And so he would go and he would use all the money that was left in there, but the kids were safe. So there were ways to do it with, uh, and let him suffer through the results of his actions without putting the rest of us at jeopardy, including physically. So I kind of did that. My favorite thing that she ever did, he had gone to prison and he was going to be let out. And he had convinced them that he was an American citizen. She was afraid when he got out that he was going to come and find her. And he had, in fact, intonated that through family members. And so she called down to immigration and and said, "Um, why is he being uh, let out and not deported? because he's a felon. And they said, well, he's an American citizen. She took proof that he was born in Mexico and not an American citizen, but an illegal. And so when he walked out, immigration picked him up and then they deported him and he's not been back since. Oh, fabulous. Hooray. My kids don't even know that I did that. She had bags with passports and kids clothes and, and stuff at someone's house she could get to. She had planned that all out if they needed to escape. Holding it together for the kids that long, it takes a lot of lot of strength and a lot of work. I can see where the the cycle keeps her there, you know, and I can see why she stayed. I, I don't understand it because I haven't felt it. Yeah. But, but I understand, you know, via our conversations, how he made her feel. Like she could not survive without him. Oh, right. She had six kids. How is she going to survive on a teacher's salary? Which, by the way, she ended up doing. How about that? How about that? But, but, you know, he made sure I felt like I couldn't. Of course. Exactly. The fact that uh, she didn't give up the ghost is is a true testament to strength. Julie, what would you say your advice would be to family members 
just remember getting them out isn't the end of what needs to happen. You know, getting them out is a start. And also to remember that once they're out, they're still in a lot of danger. It's not the end to get them out. I mean, this is 20 years later. And I'm still, every once in a while, I, I thoughts come up that tell me you're thinking like you did when you lived with Chaba. I think that what gets lost here is how the older kids were affected. The only one who isn't affected is Fernando because he didn't exist when she was married to Chaba. I find it interesting how her children have internalized what happened. Rosa makes sure that Rosa takes care of everything for Rosa. And she's got a really thick line of where right and wrong is. But she people pleases her partner and not in necessarily a good way. But what I find most interesting is financially, Rosa will never take money from a male partner. Ever. Ben and, and Jack were affected. Those are the oldest two boys. And the, the protective streak is really strong with both of them, particularly of their mother. They all can go into emergency mode. They go into fight or flight really easily. So they protect themselves. They wall themselves off a little bit. Mom gets out. The kids follow. I see, I see a difference in them over time. But... This is a, a huge family disease, too, because, I mean, she was the victim of the, the brunt of the physical abuse, but they had to witness it. Yes, because it's affected all of their relationships. Yeah. Um, in a way, it's affected Fernando because the older kids are like, Mom, Fernando doesn't know what it was like. And they say, we're going to toughen him up. Tough love. He has to understand what it was like. And they would mess with the poor guy a lot because they felt like he needed to understand and get tough. Because for he, the he wasn't around for the abuse and his father's not an abuser. Yeah. It really did affect everyone, especially my parents. It was really hard on them because they kept us in this cocoon and then turned us out to this world where there were people who were not raised with the same values we were. And I'm not talking about church values. My dad would tell me, you know right from wrong. What's the next right thing to do? And I think that there are people out there that never stop and say, okay, I know this is wrong. And that's why at first I wasn't afraid to talk to my parents because I knew it was wrong. What was going on? And I was telling Patty yesterday, even I think that it took me a while to figure out that we had an aunt that I was almost positive was abused. And it just wasn't talked about. And our uncle was definitely an alcoholic. I knew he was different from dad, but I didn't understand what that difference was until I saw Chava. And then I could name it. How do you think talking about it helps? Well, I, I think that just having an awareness uh, that this is out there in the world. And, and like, I really like 
the the wheels that you have that show you know signs of a possible abuser and yes. uh for the teen dating and we've talked about patty and how she was killed my daughter patty who was killed by a boyfriend how old was she when she was killed by 16 16 yes there are just signs that this person might be an abuser control and those kind of things that that we identify now as being signs that this person is an abuser girls need to hear that there's still the stigma of talking about it patty was included in a calendar uh, the year after she died of girls here in the houston area that had been killed uh, by their partners is patty named after patty yes she is that's your namesake patty yeah and she'd call me out and she'd say uh, hey aunt patty you give me a present She's a good kid, but same token, she she had the same issues with with men that her mom did. With that one, anyway. She started sneaking guys when she was about thirteen. She started liking boys or whatever, and yeah, they were never what I would say quality. We'll just call it that. Not great quality. Patty, what would, advice would you give for anybody who has a family member going through this? You're out of your league. You got to get help from people who know how to deal with the situation because as much as you love them, you're not the right person. You need to get someone involved who has professional training in it. That's and, good advice. It is. Yeah, and don't ever give up on them. That's the biggest thing is don't ever give up on thank you patty and julie linda is someone i have known as a bubbly presence in my town for about 30 years linda was answering the hotlines for the local domestic abuse agency for about 10 years but says it wasn't until she saw the finding our voices posters all around town of survivors breaking their silence that she realized that her first marriage of 20 years was abusive Welcome, Linda. And now, let's talk about it. My marriage was 23 years. It was absolutely wonderful. And so I kind of really had worked hard at burying a previous marriage of 18 years, which wasn't nice at all. Wow. And I was just so happy in the relationship I had afterwards that lasted 25 years that I thought, I just put that behind me. And it was actually... When you came out with your story, and of course, sadly, everyone was like shocked. None of us knows what goes on behind anyone's closed doors. So we're like, really? Is this happening to Patricia? And so I started thinking about myself, and then I so admired that you, you let your voice be heard. And, and then I saw other women letting their voice be heard. And I just started thinking a lot about my past, and I and I really never wanted to talk about it, mainly because I really didn't want my daughter to know about it. I never said bad things about him. Mm. It took me a long time to leave, and I've learned through New Hope that 
It's about seven times that a woman goes back and forth before she really makes the cut. Well, Linda, how how did you meet him? Tell me how old you were, how old he oh, was, the situation of meeting I was, each we other. We were seniors in high school, and he was head of the Latin Club and National Honor Society, and I was in such admiration of his intellect, <laughs> and also he was quite an activist back then. If he thought something was wrong. He'd be writing letters to the editor of the local paper. I just admired all that because deep inside, I've always been an activist. He went to Boston College and got his degree in social work. And I, in those days, was uh, went to a fashion design school in Boston. And we only saw each other on the weekends. His idea of a date was going to the library. And, and I never made the honor roll my whole life until I met him. <laughs> I wanted to impress him, decided I'd better study. So it wasn't um, a relationship that was full of any passion at all. And and not like my 25 years with Phil. It was like, to me, he was just the cutest thing ever in the whole world. We married way too young. I think I turned 22 or 23 on our honeymoon. And he used to call me his little trade school girl. Because I didn't go to college. And I certainly wasn't in the in that college preparatory program in high school, to me, I'd rather be sewing and designing clothes. And, you know, I always followed my heart. It's like, this is what I love to do. If there was a course that I found boring, I just ignored it. But look how he categorized what you were doing. Oh, yeah. As a put down. Oh, yeah, of course it was. And it was at the time that it was a put down. Yeah, there was a lot of little hurts. Well, a lot of hurts. And he was jealous of me that I could make a probably better living than he did. He was always telling me, now you're in charge of this or that. So it didn't really matter what I did. There wasn't any space for that. It was all about supporting him and his projects. For a long time, I just had him on a pedestal. Oh, yeah, he was very controlling, like, you have to listen to this music. This is, you know, here's a book you have to read. And then I got pregnant after eight years of marriage and the first words out of his mouth was how could I up our lives like this like he had nothing to do with it I was the only woman in those birthing classes that you go to whose husband wasn't there oh and I found out later he was having an affair and and so often they're cheats and I found out I hadn't been married very long when he thought it was hysterical telling me how the years we were dating, which was like six years, he and his best friend used to screw all these girls from Brandeis University while he was dating me. And I had never had a clue. And he told you this while you were basically trapped in marriage. We were married. And he just said, oh, you never, you know, like, and I thought, Well, if you did it while we were dating, Mm. we ended up moving into Detroit, where he was getting now his PhD at Wayne State University. And I became a glove, hat, and scarf buyer for the Jail Hudson Company. And I was traveling to Europe. Nice. And yeah, I was the first non-college graduate they ever put in an quote, an executive position. Was he proud of you, do you think? No, he was offered a job in Australia in in a little town called Wagga Wagga as a professor. And I thought, oh, maybe that's what we need, a new beginning, a new place. If there was one lesson to be learned from it all is you take your 
wherever you go. <laughs> you know, moving to another it's place gonna, doesn't change no. a thing. It was International Year of the Woman, and I was the first woman that they ever employed in an executive position. Oh, my goodness. I was the personnel officer. I guess maybe one of the reasons I never really shared all my story was that maybe I, sometimes I think I was too busy. Maybe I wasn't the wife he wanted. Except you blame I, yourself. Yeah, I never refused him sexually. And actually, our sex life wasn't bad. I mean, and and when it got bad, he was smoking a lot of pot. But I remember there was another couple. They were friends of ours. But they were a little strange. And we went to the house one night. And it's like the three of them had it all set up that we were going to have a foursome or we were going to do a switchies wow. or something. And I remember going into their bedroom to use the bathroom and there at the end of the bed was all set up with the tripods and the cameras. God. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for telling me about this. I just said I didn't feel that well and let's go home. And he just, I remember him saying, you are no fun. Was there any financial abuse? Did he take your money? or Yes, there was. How, what was the financial um, abuse? He was just so secretive. I guess that was, you know, I found out he had a pri- his own private post office box. Oh, my God. You know, things like that. And when, when we left and split up money, I actually had two little companies in Australia. One was the Jiffy Steamer, you know, the steam, you steam the clothes. Yeah. I was the distributor in Australia for that. And I had found it in my travels and called the company and said, oh could God, I be your distributor amazing. and stuff? Well, he, he sold that company, and I never saw a penny. After I had the store, I let him close the store at night because I'd come home mid-afternoon. My daughter came home from school, and I'd start dinner and all that kind of thing. And he'd go down because I had sales girls, and he'd close the store. And in those days, a lot of cash. There weren't the credit cards like there are now. And um, and I found out he'd opened a secret bank account in another town. Oh my goodness. To this day, I still don't know what he had. Well, I caught him with the babysitter that I'd known oh. since she was 11 years old. Oh, my God. She was about 20. Caught him in bed? Caught him. him. No, no. Uh, we had a swimming pool in the backyard, and we had a screened-in sun porch. And I was in the kitchen, and I looked out, and she's laying on a couch... And he's standing in front of her, standing in front of her face, actually. And uh, he's taking off his bathing suit. Are you kidding me? I made a comment. He says, oh, like she hasn't seen one before or something. Like, like what's the big deal? And I'm like, I, I, don't, I guess I was just in such shock. And my heart was so broken that I actually probably spent a couple of months seemed like forever I actually became ill really ill my breath was so bad Patricia that I was like I felt I was rotting from the inside wow. he was a therapist he counseled married couples so did he also know how to, 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 to screw around with your mind in a way yes. it sounds like he probably oh, yeah. did that yeah do you feel that there was some of that like, well he used to say you're crazy they ought to lock you up he, he and I used that? to think I was crazy. Oh, yeah. Once after the baby was born, when I 
got really angry at him and I knew he was having an affair with this woman. I said to him, you're not even a man. I remember saying that and I got thrown across the living room. I was just literally physically ill and I, I, I would take any pill any woman would give me that would help me sleep and and but were the, you thinking of leaving him at that point the thing that happened and i'm not a, i mean i was raised unitarian i'm hardly a religious nut but i'm very spiritual about things and one night just before i left he had made love to me and I just remember laying, he could have made love to this table, that's how I felt, but I remember laying in bed, I remember laying in bed and said, do you see it? And he said, what? I said, there's this, that, that, that dove, that bird, it's a big white dove and it's just, I don't know what it's, why it's in the room, it's just over me. Oh, And I used to say all the time, over and over, take me, I my prayer to, to God was, take me away or show me the way. I used to say it all the time. Out of the marriage, you mean? Yeah, take me away. Now, I wanted to die. I mean, that's how awful I felt. But I just said, take me away or show me the way. Show me the way, I used to say. And then there was one day, so I saw this dove over my head. And I fell into the deepest sleep I had slept in the longest time. I woke up in the morning. And I was on a mission from God. I went down and got plane tickets, bought two trunks, filled them up, took them to the train station, shipped them to America, and said to him, I was frightened to say, I'm leaving you and divorcing. I'm going to go home for a little while to clear my mind. I guess it was my final acceptance that I wasn't crazy and what I knew to be the truth, it was the truth, that he was unfaithful. And then I realized, looking back, he'd been unfaithful. And then the birth of our daughter and him never coming near me those nine months. And I just kept saying, I deserve better. You deserve better, Linda. I used to look in the mirror all the time. You deserve better. And I often say this to women on the phone, you know. On the hotline? Yeah. I talk to a lot of women that really have their acts together. And I, of course, I praise them for calling and recognizing that it's dysfunctional. And I said, you know, this is a big step that you've made this call. You know, this is a big step because you know, you realize it, and you deserve better. You say that a lot. I do. And I call them by their first name because they've been called bitch and for years. Oh, my God. Right? Were you called that? Yeah. No, never bitch, but a The guys, the, the, the abusive guys love that word. Why do you think it is that they love that word? They're not I don't calling know. you that. I don't know. Yeah, but it's true. It's, you see a pattern of it. Yeah, so I you, called him Needle. How's that one? Oh, you did? <laughs> no, in my, in my mind. In your mind. In your mind. When I did start dating before I met Phil, I did join a dating service that was rather expensive, if I recall. And it was, she introduced you to, oh, like a... He owned a newspaper. He was a dentist. This, you know, and it was parties up in Chestnut Hill, and she'd make introductions. and And I dated a guy that owned a construction company, and then I dated a guy that owned a newspaper for like a year. And he was abusive. He was abusive, and I didn't. How was he? Know it? Oh, if he drank, it, it really showed up. 
he took me to Peru, to Lima. Allende was in power at that time, but all the heads of all the newspapers, Miami Herald, everybody was there, Chicago Tribune. They were all there, and he and Alande put on this. Inc- I mean, to this day, I never experienced anything like that. Except I did have a beautiful Christmas party at your house. <laughs> you were in your gown. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> it was beautiful. I remember coming back to the hotel room and him throwing socks at me. His socks and said, "Wash my socks." Goodness. And I threw my pantyhose at him and said, "Wash my pantyhose." And he got angry. And then we ended up going to Cusco, where, you know, you get headaches because you're in the elevation, and they give you coca tea and all this stuff. But I remember we were sitting in a restaurant having dinner. It was our first night there. And he said, you think you're so special. You know, this is how it all started. You know, you think you're so swell. And, and I said, what are you talking about? Did it come out of the blue? Yeah, and I think he'd been drinking wine, and he probably had had the coca tea, and who knows what was in his yeah, head. Yeah, but you weren't saying things like that to him. No, so no not excuse. at all. I exactly. was, like, shocked. So there's no reason. And he said he met, brought up his not washing out his socks and doing something else, and I went, really? And I said, you'll have to excuse me. I'm, I'm not going to stay here in the dining room. And I left and there were other people we were with at other tables so they saw it and he was humiliated I'm sure but I got up and went back to the room and when he got back to the room he jumped on top of me and and just put his hands around my neck and and thought he was going to choke me and I he wasn't a big man and I got him pushed him off and everything and then he starts crying then he's on his hand one of those oh forgive me and all this stuff when he was asleep I packed my suitcase. I snuck down into the lobby. They gave me another room and said there was a flight at six in the morning wow, back to Lima. Good for you. And I had exactly ten dollars. I had my plane ticket and my passport. I made it into Logan Airport. I think I had a dollar or fifty cents. <laughs> had to call my sister to come good get for me. You. And by the time I met Phil, I knew what I I knew what I wanted. I knew the kind of relationship I wanted. I wanted just kindness and honesty and truth and and the fact that Phil was not college educated that at first threw me back and his idea of a date was going to an ashram he was a follower of Guramaya which I loved the whole spiritual side of him and he'd already done a lot of work on himself his wife had left him for another man I have cards this deep and poems that Phil sent wow. to me that would just that makes me cry. I can't even look at them, oh. the, the things he has said. I had letters over the years that I'd saved in a bag from, his name was Tony. And uh, after divorce and everything, when I came back to this country, I took them all and decided to put them in sequence from way back to the last one, and started reading them and saw for the first time something that just connected one thing to the other, things I hadn't seen before. What, like what things did you oh, see? Oh, they were all, I need, I want, oh. Um, oh, calling me a naughty girl, or something I did wrong, or I hurt his feelings. Like he's feel- a father instead of a... But it was never, I miss you, I love you, you know, it was none of that. He, he wasn't romantic. What would you say to women who are stuck in the kind of relationship that you were? Did you know that there was something better to be had at the time? No. You didn't? But 
Don't wait too long. Don't wait till you're 60. If it's at 40, get out. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our survivor-powered nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, and to find out how you can help us break the silence, visit findingourvoices.net. Feel free to get in touch with me, Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, at hello at findingourvoices.net. Until next time, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long